Once again, I think that as we look at this revelation, it's good to be reminded of the first five words of the book and to be reminded that this is a revelation supremely of uh, Jesus Christ. That's the purpose behind it. And uh, sometimes in a study of Revelation, here we are going into the third week, and people can get a little antsy, and we haven't read about one famine yet, or one disaster, one continent seeking into the sea, you know. And you call this a study of Revelation? I mean, come on, let's get to the action. And uh, But the fact of the matter for us as members of the body of Christ, these seven letters to the seven churches, in terms of just pure application, they are really kind of the, the high point of it. And in this seven letters to the seven churches, we have a revelation from Jesus of what is important to him and in his church, what is unimportant to him, what he likes, what he does not like, uh, in his church and so it's priceless and I'm in no hurry to uh, race through it. The church at uh, Smyrna here as we look at that tonight a little bit of background is helpful for understanding what he's addressing here. The church of Smyrna was located about 35 miles north of the city of Ephesus. Like Ephesus, it was a harbor city. In fact, its harbor was much superior to uh, Ephesus's. They were able to close their harbor off in the time of war. But because it had a harbor, it was a commercial center. It was a shipping center uh, in the ancient world. And this shipping uh, under the Roman Empire, because of the safety that Rome introduced, into the world that it had conquered and uninterrupted kind of supply and demand in these things uh, the city of Smyrna prospered very much under uh, Rome it was surrounded by rich farmland and was especially famous for its trade in wines. I'm making every effort to make this applicational uh, to Modesto here. But that's the truth about it. Famous, famous for its farmland, famous for its trade in wines. At the time that Jesus uh, dictates this letter to John to have it uh, delivered there to uh, the church in Smyrna, Smyrna had a population of about 100,000 plus. Uh, the church of Smyrna, the only one of the seven churches that exists uh, to this day, uh, the other six do not exist, they are ruins. Uh, it, is a, has a, it is an existing city of a population of about 200,000 plus, and it is uh, in Turkey and known by the name of Izmir. It was a city that was famous for its beauty, a city that was famous for its planning. Uh, it was completely destroyed at one point in its history, and it was rebuilt by someone, very, very fortunate for them, who was basically without any limitation in terms of his resources, uh, in terms of rebuilding a city. It was rebuilt by Alexander the Great, and he made it a model in the ancient world of what a well-planned city should be. Wide, straight streets ran all the way through the city, uh, north and south and east and west. Their freeway on-ramps were the envy of the entire uh, ancient world. That's not true, I just made that up. But, you know, while we're dreaming about that kind of planning. So, but... 
the most famous of these streets that were built there in, in Smyrna. And, and it had, of course, the, the advantage of having been leveled and destroyed. So it could be built uh, right from the ground up. Not every city has that advantage, if you want to call it that. The most famous of uh, its streets was called the Golden Street. And at the harbor end of this street was the Temple to Sibylle. Uh, and then at the other end of the street, on the inland side, toward the uh, mountain that kind of rose up out of the ground, there stood the Temple of Zeus. Between these two uh, uh, pagan uh, kind of altars and temples, all along that street were temples to Apollo, temples to um, uh, Asclepios, temple to uh, Aphrodite. And so the Christians in the city of Smyrna, they were surrounded by idolatry, surrounded by paganism. Now historically, the leaders of uh, Smyrna were nothing if they were not pragmatic. They knew how uh, to see uh, someone who was up and coming. They knew uh, what to hitch their wagon to that would be best for their city. And uh, they, they knew how to spot a winner, politically, militarily, align themselves with it to, to their benefit. And as early as 195 B.C., the leaders in Smyrna spotted a winner in Rome. And they aligned themselves fully with Rome. They, they thought to themselves, this is a power that is going to be very influential in the world, and we're going to tie our fortunes to uh, this, this people and to the, whatever it is that's happening here. And so, seeing the rising power of Rome, they aligned uh, with Rome, and they built a temple for pagan Roman worship in the city. And, of course, this endeared them to Rome all the more. And, uh, and during some of Rome's early military defeats in, in the establishing of its empire, the thing about Smyrna is they stayed steadfastly loyal to Rome, even when it was dangerous to do so. So they had a special relationship with, with Rome. In 23 BC, Smyrna was given the honor by Rome of building a temple to the emperor Tiberius because of their faithfulness to Rome. And thus, the city of Smyrna became one of the centers for what became known as emperor worship in the ancient world. Now, a little bit about uh, Caesar worship or emperor worship in, in that time. When Rome began to conquer the ancient world, not everyone was displeased with it. They brought a law and order to the ancient world that was missing in vast parts of that world. They eliminated uh, pirating on the seas. They eliminated uh, just bands and bands and bands of thieves that were on the roads. Nobody could be sure that they could ship one thing from another, whether on land or sea, and that it had any hope of getting to its destination. And when Rome became uh, a world-dominating empire, they made made the seas safe for shipping. They made the roads safe uh, for trade. And so because these things became safe to do, uh, those that were under the Roman Empire uh, prospered. And uh, as they prospered commercially, the people prospered. They liked the law and order. All of the petty wars and not so petty wars that uh, were being fought between one small nation or one small kingdom and another and all of this, Rome brought a stop to all of it. And uh, not everyone was thrilled with it, but a lot of people were, because at least you knew what you were dealing with 
with when you woke up in the morning and you're trying to make uh, a, a living uh, under, under Rome. And so people were grateful for that, and as any, anyone might imagine, that thankfulness turned into a tremendous loyalty on the part of many, and many who were powerful uh, toward Rome and toward the Roman Empire, But how could a person express uh, such worship and such thankfulness to Rome? Uh, there was only one person who personified all of the greatness of Rome, and that was the emperor. And so emperor worship or Caesar worship arose at this time in the Roman Empire. Now the early emperors of Rome shunned it. They had no in- they knew they were just men, you know, and they that they weren't gods or anything and they shunned this idea of worshiping them as any kind of of a god. But ultimately you know, people can kind of get used to being called that, uh, or that there's people that want to worship them in that kind of, of a way. And so this emperor worship or Caesar worship began to pro- progress from something that was strictly voluntary at the beginning to something that became mandatory. Early on, it was completely voluntarily, uh, voluntary. And uh, though there were st- uh, very, very strong pockets throughout the Roman Empire, uh, here and there, that engaged in Caesar worship, it wasn't a widespread practice. But later, as the Roman Empire grew, they were looking for something that could unite the entire empire. They were trying to keep a very diverse group of nations and peoples and cultures all together, how to introduce one unifying thing into the midst of all of them and keep this thing all together. And ultimately, they decided the best way to do that would be then to take Caesar worship and move it from something that was voluntary and then to make it something that was uh, mandatory where all in the Roman Empire would be uh, forced to worship Caesar as a god, where he would be officially uh, deemed a, a, a god. And so there came that point in, in, in time, and actually it, it happens at the time here, in which this letter is uh, being written under the emperor Domitian at the time that John writes this this revelation he's the one that took the next step and said we're not going to have this thing be voluntary anymore we're going to make it mandatory and now this is the place that Christians found themselves in once a year a Roman citizen was required to burn a pinch of incense on an altar to Caesar and declare that Caesar is Lord and when that person did that they were then given a certificate of evidence that he had performed his religious uh, duty and to offer that incense and to make that declaration concerning Caesar was considered to be an act of worship toward him now the Romans were not jealous about this you could go into the temple to Rome and you could offer your incense you could declare uh, your worship of, of Caesar and uh, and uh, Caesar is Lord, then immediately go out the door and go to the temple uh, of Apollo and offer a sacrifice there. Go offer at the temple to Asclepio or uh, any of these other temples and worship all of them if you want. Rome didn't say you had to purely worship them, just that you had to worship Caesar in, in, uh, in addition to anyone else that you, you would want to worship. But to refuse 
to offer this to Caesar, it immediately branded you as someone who was disloyal to Rome. And of course, Christians could not do this. They simply, uh, that's idolatry. It was the worship of something that clearly was not and is not God. And, and, uh, And so it was compromise, and they simply would not do it. So under Domitian, and then on and off for the next 200 years, Christians became the object of uh, crushing, crushing persecution uh, by Rome because they were viewed as disloyal to the Roman Empire. Now, while every, um, not every city in the empire was strict in their enforcement of this decree, the citizens in Smyrna were. They prided themselves in their loyalty to, to Rome, and, uh, and they desired Rome's favor. And so to be a Christian in Smyrna meant automatic persecution. There was hardly any other place in the Roman Empire that you could be that, that uh, would bring greater persecution upon you as a Christian than to be a Christian in the city of Smyrna. To go to church on Sunday or whenever in, in Smyrna was to take your very life and, into, into your hands. That was the level of the persecution against them. There was no place for weak Christians, that's for sure. Now, the, the city, the name of the city, Smyrna, it means myrrh, and in ancient times and to this day too, uh, myrrh is a sweet-smelling herb that was used in those days for embalming uh, dead bodies. You remember Joseph of Arimathea and uh, then Nicodemus, they came as Jesus died upon the cross and they buried him and when they came and they took the body of Jesus, they brought with them a hundred pounds, we're told by John, a mixture of myrrh and aloe in order to take and, and to embalm or place this around his body as it was, it was wrapped up. So it became uh, symbolic of death. Now, one of the interesting things about this herb uh, called myrrh is that it had to be crushed in order for its fragrance to come out in its fullness. So you could smell it a little bit, but to crush it was to release the fragrance of, of, of the herb. And just as Jesus, we're told, the full fragrance of his love and his nature was revealed to us, on the cross as the weight, the crushing weight of our sin, he bore it there on the cross. But in the same way, the Christians there in Smyrna, they're being crushed by tribulation, by poverty, by blasphemy. And, but through all of this crushing, uh, God is, is in, in essence communicating to them that there is a fragrance that is coming off of their life that is a sweet-smelling fragrance to him and also to others. And what is true of them is true of us. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are the fra- to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So he writes the letter, verse 8, to the messenger or the pastor, the person that is delivering God's message to this, this body, uh, speaking for God to the body. So he, he writes this letter to the pastor or the leader of the church. He gives his self-description also in verse 8. And he does this in all seven of the letters, and he describes himself as these things says the first and the last, 
That's the first description. He describes himself secondly as who was dead and came to life. And we'll talk about these things uh, in just a little bit. But again, when he reminds them of something concerning himself, these aren't random kind of thoughts to fill in uh, the letter. Each description that he makes of himself, he pulls from his description, the description of him in Revelation chapter 1 and he is reminding his churches of certain things about himself that number one they have either uh, lost sight of or forgotten or number two that they're quite well aware of but they need to be even more aware of because of the difficulty of the circumstance that they're in now notice their circumstance in the, for the Christians there in uh, Smyrna for this church he says in verse 9, I know your works, uh, your tribulation. The Greek word that's used for tribulation there is the word thlipsis, and it means a pressure. It was a word that was used uh, for someone who would take and put grapes and uh, in, in a vat and then step upon those grapes until the grapes were crushed and the juice would come forward. It was a word that was used in ancient times if they were wanting to uh, produce a confession out of a criminal or, or to torture someone. One of the things they used to do would be to have a person lie on his back they would put a great stone on his chest, a great pressure upon him, and as his breath would go out, he would be unable to draw air back in uh, because of the weight, and he would ultimately die under the weight of the pressure that he was under. That's the word that Jesus uses to speak of the kind of tribulation and pressure that they were under as Christians endeavoring to live for, Lord, for the Lord in, in this envir environment. To be a Christian in Smyrna was to be under constant crushing, killing uh, pressure. Can't catch your breath uh, pressure. Then he says, I know your poverty, verse 9. The word that he uses in the original language for poverty is an interesting one. There are several uh, Greek words that are used for poverty. One Greek word for poverty means a person that has only what is necessary to survive. They have food, they have clothing, but they have nothing extra. That is not the word that Jesus uses for the poverty of this church. The word that he uses here is a word that means abject poverty. It means absolute destitution. It is the poverty of one who has nothing at all. The one Greek word that speaks of poverty speaks of one who has nothing extra. This word speaks of one who has nothing at all. And to be a persecuted minority uh, within a uh, nation or within a city that's even less zealous than Smyrna was uh, creates problems for a population. And as you might imagine, here they are, they're viewed as traitors to Rome, and uh, here Rome is the source of all of our prosperity and everything, and these people won't get on with the program and all, and then pretty soon you're disowned by your family or you're fired by... Uh, it, it, on, on your job and all and, and stores won't sell to you your home is pillaged which was not unusual uh, in, in the early church and these were the problems that they were facing 
And uh, we don't face those here in this country. But it doesn't mean we don't know that a large part of the rest of the world does face it as, as Christians. It's interesting, um, Christians face this in, in villages in India today. To become a Christian in a Hindu village, not talking about a city, I'm talking about a village, means you're disowned by your family. Uh, you come home one day and everything you own is out in the street, so to speak, or out on the path. It's gone. And because the whole family is, is, or the whole city or village is gathered around the worship of these, these Hindu gods, nobody's going to hire you. And not only will they not hire you, but if you have money, they won't sell to you. You can't buy anything in their stores. You can't get water from the well at the village because of your faith in this strange God and, and their, and their way, way of thinking. And so this is the kind of circumstance that they were in and believers find themselves in, in, in today. And, I, and I, I love Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna. I love it to challenge me, to, to really challenge me in a good way, in, an, in a needed uh, way. Here is a group of Christians. All they needed to do was compromise and get out from under the pressure that they were under and the poverty that they were under. Now you, you take that and, and think about that. Think about the man. Think about the father. Think about the husband. Whoever is the head of the household in that situation. Because here he is, he's making a decision not just for himself. He's not just bearing the consequences of this decision to stay faithful to the Lord. He's watching his wife, who he loves most in life, next to the Lord, bear the consequences. His children, who he loves next most in all of life. He sees them pay this terrible, terrible price, and yet they would not budge on this issue. And, 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 I, and we think about how often we can be tempted to budge for such, so, such lesser things. And they wouldn't do it even if it would have gotten them out from under all the things that, that they were, were under. I think it's very important for us. And, you know, we've had Chris and Sasha come forward here tonight and talk a little bit about the work in Moscow and, and all. But so often missionaries feel, and I feel bad for them a lot of times, and they feel pressure in the newsletters and all these different things. I don't say that they do, but a lot of people do. Uh, they feel like every newsletter's got to talk about scores saved and this thing happened and this dynamic deal is happening and this and that in, in order to uh, be deemed worthy of support by the rest of the body of Christ. There are certain places in the world that to just survive without compromise, just to maintain a Christian presence in that city without compromise is worthy of the support of the rest of the body of Christ if not one person is saved or if a thousand people are, are saved. It's a very extraordinary group of people in this, in this city. Now notice Jesus' assessment of them. Said, as he said to them there, I know of your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but he says, but you are rich. Now that tells me that how Jesus defines riches and how uh, the world defines riches and how Jesus defines riches and poverty and how some even, sometimes even professing Christianity defines uh, poverty and riches uh, are two entirely different things. 
contrary to the, the health and wealth doctrine today, the faith doctrine today that says that if we only have enough faith, we'll never be sick. If we only have enough faith, we'll always, uh, you know, prosper materially and, and, and be wealthy and these, and these kinds of, of, of things. And the teaching is dead wrong. And, and I'll say this. It is an affront. It is an affront to every member of the church of Smyrna for 2,000 years. And it is an affront to every member of the church of Smyrna in the world today. To teach that doctrine, I ought to be ashamed of myself if I were to do that. See, this is why we need these letters that are written to the church, Jesus writing to the churches so that we can keep our heads screwed on straight in the wackiness of, of today. Where is Jesus' rebuke for their lack of faith? He doesn't rebuke them. Instead of rebuking them, he's one, they are only two, one of two of the seven churches that Jesus has nothing bad to say to this church at all. It's just pure encouragement that he speaks to them in, in this uh, letter. Notice that he doesn't even promise them material prosperity as their right. He doesn't say, you know, you just hang in there and, uh, you know, we got the, 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 uh, the stagecoaches on the way filled with gold. I mean, you, you, know, you know what he tells them? He said, you, you stay faithful to me, even in that condition, and you stay faithful to me until death. Wow. I don't, I don't know how that reaches pretty deep into my heart and into my commitment for the Lord. And it tells me a lot about the kind of commitment that Jesus wants from his people and expects from those that identify with him in, in, this, in this world. And so things are not going to get easier for them. They're not going to get better for them. Things are going to get worse, Jesus goes on, to speak uh, to them. But that's the difference on, on how heaven sees riches and how the world and, and even uh, people that claim to be spiritual see riches. Every single one of us that knows the Lord tonight. And I mean, uh, who was it? Henry Ford or Rockefeller who said, you know, I've been, I've been poor and I've been rich, and, and rich is better. I mean, there's no doubt, uh, in, in a physical sense, uh, no doubt that that's true. But that's not the only way to measure riches. It's the feeblest way to, to measure riches. I think it's important, and I do it every once in a while, is I just go back to Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and I read over again how rich I am in Christ Jesus because I've been adopted into his family. I've been forgiven. I, I have uh, been redeemed, bought out of slavery. I have the Holy Spirit within me. I have the confidence of heaven within me. We're rich, 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 every single one of us that, that knows the Lord uh, tonight in a way that, the, the, that heaven uh, declares uh, riches. He says in verse 9 further, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So as if persecution were not enough, as if poverty were not enough, as if tribulation and pressure were not enough, they're also being blasphemed within the city. And the word blasphemy means to be uh, evil spoken of within that city. Not by pagans, not by 
idol-worshipping Gentiles, but those who claimed to be Jews, Jesus said, but were not. To be persecuted in, in that environment uh, by uh, those who claim to know God, by those who claim to represent God. And there's a very large Jewish population in Smyrna at that time, and they used all of their power to make things thoroughly miserable for the Christians uh, there in Smyrna and even in, in the early church. Now, the Jews had an advantage the Christians didn't have because they were monotheists like Christians, believed only in one God. And <clears throat> you, they were not... <clears throat> So you can look at them and, and think to yourself, well, did they have to burn incense uh, to Caesar? They did not, because they were, they were a recognized religion by Rome. Excuse me for a moment. <clears throat> if you're thirsty, I'll torture you. They were, as a, as a religion, they were recognized by Rome and exempted from it. But rather than taking that and, and looking and saying, look at what would be coming on us if we did not have this exemption. Let's have pity on these, these other people who have these convictions that we have but no exemption. They heaped on and used every, everything that they had to make life miserable for the Christians there uh, in, in Smyrna. And Jesus declared their synagogue to be a synagogue of Satan. And I think it's very important to understand what he isn't saying there and what he is saying there. There's no place for anti-Semitism in the body of Christ. I mean, think about it. Was our, what lineage did our Savior come from? <laughs> He's Jewish. Uh, the, all of the apostles, Jewish. The leaders of the early church, the makeup of the very earliest early church, all of it Jewish. Of course, there's no place for anti-Semitism in, in the life of, of a Christian. So what he's not saying, he's not saying that, uh, that uh, this was true, that they were of the synagogue of Satan, was true of every Jew in the ancient world. It's not a, a reference to Jews in in general, he's not saying that every synagogue in the ancient world or today is and was a, a synagogue of Satan. Uh, remember, uh, again, uh, Jesus, the, the, the apostles, the early church, all Jewish. Remember, Jesus, the apostle Paul, went into synagogues and, and taught during their ministries. Remember that he warned Ephesus about the fact that there were false apostles who came in, claimed to be apostles, but were not. So what do we do with that? We look and we say, you got a bunch of phonies who are claiming to be apostles, and you got to identify them and differentiate them from the real thing and not get the two things confused. Well, it's the same thing here. He's not saying that all Jews or all synagogues are the synagogue of Satan. He's, and, and we wouldn't dismiss all apostles on the basis of his letter to Ephesus. And so the same, same thing uh, here. He's talking about here in Smyrna, these certain kinds of Jews thought that they had a relationship with God, thought they were doing God's work and all representing the Lord, and they, they were not. Jesus is speaking of those Jews who were persecuting and, and attempting to destroy Christians and attempting to destroy uh, Christianity. 
And additionally, it would appear to refer to those who claimed to represent God and were not only guilty of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah for themselves, but who made every effort to keep others from accepting Jesus as the Christ and as the Messiah for themselves, denying them the right to come to the same, uh, to whatever conclusion, just the way that they had been afforded uh, the right in the early church. And everywhere Paul went in his early ministry, uh, this it was just the bane of the early church was these uh, Judaizers and these kind of, of, of Jews going from one city to the next to the next, following them to the cities that they went to and trying to destroy the work of God and these early churches. Now, it's interesting and, and destroy Christianity outright. And it's interesting that uh, the Apostle Paul would have understood all of this. He was in their number at one particular time in his attempt to destroy uh, the early church. And Jesus is saying is that behind all persecution of the church, all attempts to destroy Christians and Christianity, there is a devil that is, is behind that. And that's not, this isn't the first time that Jesus spoke out against these religious leaders who were claiming to represent God and were trying to destroy uh, the, those that were following Jesus, trying to destroy the work that Jesus came uh, to do. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, Jesus spoke to these religious leaders, and he said, For you are of your father the devil. Now, when he, sa- when he said that, you could have heard a pin drop. Nobody talked to these guys this way. Everybody fawning, coming, you know, and I mean, nobody even looked at them cross-eyed. Just, uh, un, just pure, uninterrupted uh, compliments and fawning over these guys. Uh, nobody even corrected them. Nobody said anything wrong to them, let alone speaks to them in a public setting and declares to them, you are of your father, the devil. It was like a bomb went off. And here's why. And the desires of your father, you know a tree by its fruit, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan is a murderer and he is a liar. And that is what these people were in the city of Smyrna. And they're of of their father, uh, the devil. Satan is behind all persecution of believers, even when that source is religious. Satan loves to come as an angel of light and send his messengers, appearing as if they were angels of light also. Now notice several things that Jesus says to this church. That's the condition that they're in. And uh, notice several things that he says to them. Number one, in verse 9, the two first two words of verse 9, he said, I know. I, I know your works, I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty. I, and I don't know, probably most of us have, but I don't know if you have ever been in a trial or in the middle of a loss or a difficulty or whatever it might be, and you look at your current situation and you say, I am not going to survive this. I am not going to survive what I am in the middle of. And then you call or you meet with someone that you know and that you respect just to talk to them about it. You begin to tell them all about what it is that's going on 
in, in our lives and all. And then as, as you finish telling them all about it, and you lay out the misery of the circumstance and all, and they just, there's just a quiet sigh that they give, and then they just look at you and they say, I know. And when you know that they know, it is an enormous comfort to you. And when Jesus says to us in the middle of our difficulty, I know, He does. He does. Jesus knows and knew tribulation. He knew pressure. He knew crushing pressure. You remember, even before He went to the cross and bore the sins of all of eternity on that cross, He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. Completely appropriate physically for what's happening to him spiritually in that particular environment. And the olive presses they would take and, and bring the press down on the olive in the pit and the pressure had to be so great that it would release the oil. And Jesus is in there and he's praying to the Father on the night before the cross and we're told that he begins to sweat as it were great drops of blood to the ground in front of him. The pressure that he is under in that place. He knows philipsis. He knows pressure. He knows what it is to be crushed and to be crushed unjustly and by wicked men. And he cries out to the Father and he says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But like the church of Smyrna, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knew tribulation. He knew poverty. He said to that man who came and said, Listen, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus, he's so gracious. I've said stuff like that too. I'll go wherever, you know, and, and good intentioned and all. And, and he said, You know, the foxes they have their holes and the birds of the air they have their nests. Well, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. But I think the Holy Spirit left it to Paul to bring forth the, the true understanding of the poverty that Jesus was willing to endure. Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, can you imagine how rich in the glory of heaven, yet for your sakes he became poor that through his poverty that you through his poverty might become rich he knows poverty he knows blasphemy doesn't he the day as he's, as he's crucified on that cross and, and as if all of the actions if all of the, the things that had been heaped upon him already in that day were not enough they begin to wag their heads and, and all and they begin to blaspheme him and said you know um, he claims that he'll save others himself he cannot save if you're the son of God then come down from the cross and all of that but he could not he could have come off that cross in a nanosecond you want to see someone come off the cross I'll show you someone coming off the cross <laughs> could have done it in an instant but he could not stop the blasphemy by doing that and still save us. So he stayed on the cross and he endured the blasphemy. He said, I know. And he does. There is nothing in the entirety 
length of our pilgrimage that we will ever bring to Him in prayer and just walk with Him and talk with Him about a long life's narrow way that He will not completely understand experientially Himself. And that's a good, that's a wonderful counselor to talk to. Notice number two, he tells them in verse 10, do not fear. He just flat out says it. Why, why would he say something like that? We're afraid. So he just tells them flat out, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. I would understand if he, if he came along and said, don't fear because you're not going to suffer. I'll bail you out of this in about half an hour. He doesn't do that. He said, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. And then he describes the suffering that was coming. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Again, the devil is behind this persecution. And and his intent was to wipe out any Christian witness in Smyrna. And he works every day to try and eliminate any Christian witness in Modesto and Moscow in any city or village in, in the whole world. That's what he's working to do. And it's a very, very... And what, what's his methodology to try and uh, uh, destroy the Christian witness? Suffering. To try and wipe out the Christian witness by the attacking the, and overthrowing the faith of these Christians who were suffering. And it's a very, very common uh, uh, method of his. You remember with Job, when the Lord allowed Satan to come and attack Job. If you considered my servant Job, and God begins to brag on him and all, and, and then what did Satan said? Well, sure, anybody follow you. The perks, I mean, look at how you blessed him. You, 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 you take... You take those cattle away, you take that money away, you take those crops away, he'll, he'll curse you to your face. Of course they follow you because of what they can get from you. Don't tell me there's a love that they have for you and a commitment to you that's beyond the, the physical advantages. And the Lord said, go ahead. Touch all those things. Don't touch his body. Take all those things away. And Satan took all those things away. And even in that, Job did not curse God, even when his body was ultimately uh, touched. And, And I think that it's so important when we're in the middle of these kinds of trials that we can find ourselves in and the church of Smyrna is in and all, that when we're in the middle of these deep, deep, deep trials and we don't know what in the world is is going on. We have no revelation necessarily from heaven related to why is this trial happening in my life? Why this kind of pressure? Why this blasphemy? Why this poverty? Why these things? That when we face these things that we don't know that we always fall back on what we do know. God loves me. God's for me. God is with me. God's going to work all things together for good in in my life. And that's the single great mistake that Job's friends made, didn't they? They saw all of the difficulty that he was going through, and they started to take pot shots at why it was happening. They could not have been more wrong. It's sin in your life. It's sin in your life. They were, I mean, one string banjo. Sin in your life, sin in your life, sin. Had nothing to do with sin in his life. Wouldn't it have been better if there was like 40 plus chapters in Job of them just encouraging him in God's love? 
God's presence in his life, the promises that God had for him, that God is with him. God's going to work this together for good. And that would have been a, a, better, a better use of, of time. But it's so important in these kind of situations to, to fall back on what we do know. He tells them that the length of the coming uh, tribulation is going to be uh, ten days. The word days there, it can refer to a single uh, 24-hour literal day, but it can refer to a longer period of time too. And I'm not going to get into all of this, but for example, the, the seven-year tribulation period is referred to as the day of the Lord in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So some people look at this and they say, well, it's talking about uh, seven distinct periods of persecution under, uh, or ten uh, distinct periods of persecution that came against Christians uh, beginning with Nero through ten uh, distinct uh, persecuting emperors all the way through Diocletian in, uh, through to 313 A.D. and that's what it's referring to. Maybe it is and, and, uh, and that could very well be. I think we're safe in saying that 10 days here is communicating to them that uh, however difficult the persecution is, it won't go on forever. Unlike judgment. Unlike the eternal lake of fire. That, that it, it is going to, it's limited, it won't go on indefinitely, it will come to an end, and that it is a rev- relatively a short period of time compared to e- eternity. And uh, sometimes we can think, you know, you read about this with Smyrna and everything, and you say, you know, I'm a, I'm a softy. I don't know, I... I don't, I don't know if God called me to do this kind of thing and be a martyr for him. I don't, I don't know that I'd, I'd be able to, uh, to, to do that. I mean, if they took me and I mean, there I am, I'm standing right on the edge and there are the lions in the arena and, and, and it's not, you know, uh, uh, something to think about, but it's my reality in front of me. I don't know that I could do that. Have them throw me down into that. You could. You could. Because God will give us all of the grace that we need to be a witness to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. But he only gives it at the moment that we need. Famous story concerning Corrie ten Boom. And uh, she was, during World War II, she was uh, kept in the Nazi prison camp, uh, uh, Ravensbrück. And 55,000 women died during World War II in, in that prison camp. And, and she used to think back to an account with, with her father, raised in a Christian home. Obviously, they talked about the great saints and about martyrdom and these kinds of things. And she said to her dad, she said, I, I don't, I'm afraid I would not be able to die as, as a martyr. I wouldn't be strong enough to do it. And, and he said to her, he said, listen, when, when you go on a journey, when do I give you the money? for the fair. Two weeks ahead of time? She said, no, Daddy, you give it to me when, when I'm leaving. And he said, precisely, our wise Father in Heaven knows just when we're going to need things to, and when the time comes to die, you'll find the strength you need just in time. And, and that comforted her during those long years in, in that prison. And it's true. And the same command is given to them that is given to us that is given to them. Be faithful unto death.
Christians have been faithful unto death for the Lord all through history. Church of Smyrna, all the way through even today. Uh, I have articles here that I won't tear into, but uh, recently in, in the New York Sun are talking about um, the report that was given in terms of uh, religious intolerance and religious persecution around the world when President Bush was in China recently and included uh, reports and accounts in uh, North Korea of Christians being lined up and rolled over with bulldozers. And the villages brought out to watch what was happening until people were fainting as, as their skulls exploded under the weight of, of the steamroller. That happens in the world today. What happens to Christians in the Muslim Middle East? What happens in uh, Sudan? You read even recently in uh, November of those three uh, Christian girls in Indonesia on their way to their Christian school. And uh, there were four of them and three of them, uh, they, they were beheaded. We're talking about young girls beheaded by the religion of peace. And, and, and their bodies left there and their head next to them is a message to, to Christians. It happens all over the world today. And, and God gives the grace to be uh, faithful to him. And then notice he reminds them of two things concerning himself. In verse 8, he reminds them that he is the first and the last. And to call himself the first and the last from Revelation chapter 1, that's a name for God. And he is reminding them that I am God. I am the eternal God. Now why in the world would he remind them of that in the middle of their circumstance? Because so often when we are in the middle of a trial of this kind of depth, we can begin to doubt God and begin to wonder about his power and wonder about his sovereignty, wonder if he knows or he cares or he's as powerful as he claims to be. Does he really have control of, of things? And, uh, and the strongest of us can begin to wilt under that. I think of two of the strongest saints in the entire Bible, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, both of them were Old Testament saints, uh, Elijah and then John the Baptist. And uh, John the Baptist, or Elijah, after the great victory on Mount Carmel, he tried to quit the ministry. He asked God to kill him. He's Jewish. He, he, a Jewish prophet. He could not commit suicide. Uh, no child of God is to do that. So he says, take me out. If this, is, if this is how you work and you do this great victory on Mount Carmel and Ahab and Jezebel are still the king and the queen and they're the most wicked king and queen that the nation of Israel has ever had, if you don't know how to spot momentum and how to turn something around in a nation and you're going to sit on your hands, I can't take it, kill me. So Lord, he just pulled out a gun, shot him right there in the cave. That's not what he did, did he? That's not what he did at all. But he was, he was shook. It, and, that, and that's why... See, some people go through a crisis of faith because they don't believe God can do something. There is another quality of a, of a crisis of faith. And that is to know what God can do from experience, what he could do in an instant, effortlessly, but is not doing at this moment in this trial in my life. That's what shook uh, Elijah. The same thing with John the Baptist. He, sent, he gets imprisoned, doesn't he? It's hard. He's imprisoned and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus and they ask him an amazing question. This is his cousin. Are you the one or are we supposed to be looking for someone else? 
concerning the Messiah. And Jesus went on about his business healing people and teaching and all of these things. And, and, all, and he spoke to those messengers and he said, you go back to John. In essence, this is what he said. You go back to John and you tell them the blind see and the lame are walking and the poor have the gospel being preached to them. In other words, all these things that the Bible said the Messiah would be like. And then you tell him, blessed is the man who isn't stumbled uh, related to these things. In other words, he is sending a needed rebuke to John the Baptist. And John's situation was very, very difficult. I'm not minimizing it. But he sent back a message that all of us need to hear at a time like that. And that is, John, I am not Messiah. I am not the Savior of the world. Because I meet every expectation that you have of me. I am the Messiah and the Savior of the world on the basis of fulfilling all of the promises concerning Messiah in the Law and the Prophets in the Old Testament. And so he reminds them that he is still God and still in control even when we're suffering. And I need that reminder. Number two, he reminds them that he is the one who was dead and came back to life. He reminds them of his victory over death, his authority over death. Again, he's not asking them to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself, and he wasn't asking them to do anything more than he had been willing to do for them. He had been faithful to God's will unto death. He had endured death, but death did not have the final word. And what he's saying to these Christians is, if it comes to death for you, death will not have the final say in your life any more than it did in me. Because I have authority over death and a victory over death. Death is not the end of any story God is involved in. He specializes in, in resurrection. And that reminder must have meant so much uh, to them. Jesus looks at death and heaven looks at death entirely different from how the world does and uh, sometimes entirely different from how uh, we do so often, uh, even as, as Christians. Remember when uh, Martha came to Jesus and said, you know, if, concerning her brother Lazarus who had died, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have, have died. And Jesus said, he'll, he'll be raised in, 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 you know, he'll live again. And, and he, she said, well, yes, I know he'll live again in, in the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And he who lives, that's us in this room, and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? We will never ever die. But we will move if the Lord tarries from this body into the glory of heaven. Sometimes, and I think we have to be careful as Christians here. I want to be very, very, very sensitive to what we go through in, in the loss of a loved one at death. But sometimes as Christians, not, not everyone, but sometimes when a Christian dies, uh, so often Christians act as if that is the worst thing that could have ever happened to them, especially if they're young. This is a tragedy. They had their whole life in front of them. This is terrible. They were cut down in, in their prime and these, these kinds of things. 
The Bible says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. When a saint dies, we go straight into the uninterrupted eternal glory of heaven. We have no sense of loss. No sense of loss. There is no sense of regret and there should be no sense of loss because of the environment that we have moved into, into the glory of, of heaven. Paul said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You look at that and you say, Jesus says, Be faithful unto death. You say, That's the cruel how how could that's the cruelest thing you could ever Not when you know death is a servant. Not when you know from experience what death ushers us into and the fullness of it. And then notice he reminds them at the end of verse 10 in, of eternity. There's only 70 more, so just relax. Just kidding, I am winding down here. He said, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He reminds them of the eternal reward that awaits the faithful. That at the end of a faithful life lived toward the Lord, we're going to be rewarded with a crown of life. In other words, they may take your life, but they cannot touch the everlasting life that awaits you. And, and just the warm, unspeakable beauty and, and glory of heaven. They have stripped you of all of your riches. They've stripped your reputation. They've blasphemed you. They've done all of these things and touched you in all of these physical ways. But they cannot touch the rich reward that awaits you in heaven. And that's the truth. Think about Paul at the end of his life when martyrdom uh, drew near and, and church history tells us that he was beheaded for his faith in the Lord they said for I am already being poured out as a drink offering the time of my departure is at hand he said I fought the good fight and I finished the race I've kept the faith and finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will give to me on that day and not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul said I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Speaking of the glory of, of heaven. And then notice number six. In verse 11, he calls on them to have an ear to hear. Everybody has physical ears, but not everybody uses it to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. And what does he say to Christians in this place? Don't be afraid and be faithful unto me, un unto death. And then he closes with a promise to the overcomers. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And the second death refers 
to eternal death. It speaks of eternal judgment. Romans chapter 20, uh, Revelation chapter 20 verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding them that there is something worse in life than being a persecuted Christian. And that is to not be a Christian at all. Yes, there's hardship in being a Christian. There is even death that can be involved in being a Christian. But I will never face the second death. I will never face eternal judgment for my sins. I will never come close to that eternal lake of fire. And he is reminding them that there is a day coming when thankfulness for that alone will make us forget about any and all hardship that we have endured as Christians. The old saying goes something like this. Born once, die twice. Physical birth... Now, physical birth means I'm going to die physically and then die spiritually for eternity. Born twice, die once. Born physically, then born spiritually, I will only experience one death, and that is a physical death. And that is if we're not raptured tonight or tomorrow, which I've made requests for uh, already on, on things. We will never face that judgment if you sit here tonight and you've never given your life to the Lord, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And speaking of God, tonight's the night to get saved. Tonight's the night to get on the right side of things, no matter what price we might pay in order to do that. Now, this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so last week from Ephesus, it was a revelation of how important first love is to Jesus from his church. This week from Smyrna, it's a revelation of the importance of faithfulness. That faithfulness is to him even to the point of death. And so what it does is it searches us. It searches this church. Are we still willing to do whatever Jesus calls us to do, no matter what the price, like Smyrna. And I like to think that we are. But it challenges us personally. As a Christian, am I still willing to do whatever Jesus calls me to do with my life, no matter what the price, like Smyrna, did? And I like to think that I would. And I think it's good to stop and consider those kind of questions a little bit and allow them just to search and just to freshly surrender our hearts to the Lord uh, tonight. The way, one of the ways that I look at it is if I did not know the Lord in my life, I would have either de completely destroyed my life by now or I would be so wasting it and frittering it away every single day. It's such an honor to be able to use our lives towards something that is eternal and will outlast this life. For all of its problems, for all of its difficulties, even this kind of persecution, it is the greatest life that a person can live. Now I know that I'm already four minutes over on things. Some of you may think I'm, I'm 35 minutes over. That's another story. But I want the worship team to come forward.
And I want them to lead us in a worship song that just allows us to just stop and, and just consider this thing from Jesus' heart and revelation to the body. And we just, we just look at things. Jesus is saying, and again, there are so many crazy ideas about what the church is supposed to be today. And Jesus is in essence saying in these first two letters to the leaders of the church, I want a church that loves me with a first love. And I want a church that has a deep, deep, deep commitment to me.